Uh, before I forget, I, you know, I get into my sermon, I'll be in a different zone. Um, I, I just want to say thank you to Memorial Baptist Church. You guys have been a, an awesome church, very supportive, very connected and involved with our ministry, and I appreciate that very much. Um, it's uh, When you're on the field and you're in Thailand and you're surrounded by um, Thai people, um, they're nice people, they're friendly people, but they're not like me. They don't look like me, and I don't look like them. And so it, it can get a little lonely um, sometimes when you're, you know, you're, you're a minority, like an extreme minority. Um, and uh, so it's, it's nice to know that there are people who are thinking about you and praying for you. Um, when I drive um, everywhere we go, it's a, it's a high-risk situation. Um, any insurance agent who went from America over to Thailand would be amazed that it's even possible to buy insurance in Thailand. Um, we were in, involved in an accident our first term there. A uh, motorcycle ran into us, and my insurance company you know, covered it and everything. Um, but then when my bill came for the next year's premium, it said, we are no longer able to cover you. I was like, what? And the, the pattern is, is you, you buy insurance, and if you have an accident, then you have to find a new company. It's just automatic. Um, and that's just how they do it. And I, I, they don't keep records, so they don't know if you're a bad driver or not. So um, you just start out high, paying a high rate, and then you just, every year you don't have an accident or file a claim, your rate comes down you know, a little bit each year. But um, any of you who saw the presentation this morning and saw all those motorcycles, um, it's, it's a wonderful thing for, to have people praying for you um, to keep you safe because, you know, just a, a, what would be a relatively small accident um, because of the way they load their motorcycles with so many people could be a, 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 a death. You know, someone could die from a relatively simple accident and um, it wouldn't matter what I was doing or not doing. Um, I would be at fault and it would be, it would be very messy and that's the kind of thing that would complicate our ministry significantly. So I appreciate your, your prayers all the time because uh, we're always in, in need of prayer. Just to illustrate for you the driving situation, um, there was a, a missionary lady who was out driving and she was in a, all the streets are very small, they're very congested, there's no parking and she was in a van and she was trying to back up to get back out of the road because none of the roads go through, they all dead end. Um, it seems like it anyways. And um, so she's trying, and in the process of backing up, she knocked over a motorbike that was parked alongside the street. She didn't see it, and she knocked it over. And, and, and the guy, there was a guy who was in the restaurant or the bar, I don't remember which it was, it's irrelevant, but he comes out and sees his motorcycle lying on the ground, and he goes, oh, oh. <laughs> Are you getting it? I mean, it's like... <laughs> Yeah, it was her fault, and I'm injured. <laughs> uh, anyways, so again, I, I thank you for your prayers and for your generosity in, in supporting us. Um, there's a sign-up sheet out there. If you don't get our newsletter, you can give me your um, postal address. If you want to get it by email, um, also give me your email address, but I need both because sometimes computers are picky, and ones and I's and dots and colons and dashes and underscores are kind of tricky sometimes for me. So if I don't 
if I can't read your email address, usually the mailman is able to figure it out a little bit better. Um, so do sign up for that. There are also some after-dinner mints out there. Um, before we went to the field, we set out fortune cookies. And now that we're done on the field and come back, I've set out deep-fried bamboo worms. <laughs> Sorry. Um, eat those on your way out because they will give you really bad breath. Um, it's just, they're just really obnoxious. But if you've always wanted to eat a worm, a fried worm, uh, today is your golden opportunity. Um, another way to look at it is it will make you grateful um, for other food that you have to eat this afternoon. Um, out there also is a Bible that you will not be able to read. Um, I cannot read it, but um, it was a translation work of one of my students. Um, it's the New Testament in Kaya. It's a translation that he's currently working on or will be working on when he's finished with his ABTS degree um, in the Old Testament. He's finished the New Testament. And that particular translation that you're looking at is Kaya for the Kaya people who are living in Burma. There are Kaya people living in Burma, in China, and in Thailand. And it's all spoken the same, but it's written differently depending on where the people live. So this particular Bible has been translated into one language, but printed in three different languages. So this one is the Burmese script. There's another one that's in Thai, and another one in Chinese um, characters. So I, it's, and it's fascinating to me. I, I cannot do Bible translation. It's very difficult. Um, very demanding kind of work, but I'm glad that, that some of my students are able to, to take what they learn in my classes and put that into their, their translations. Um, how many of you care about what people think about you? I would guess most of you care about what people think about you. Um, I would venture to guess that if um, you were in a, a crowded room or down in the fellowship hall or at a wedding and you were talking to someone and carrying on a conversation and then you heard somebody say your name in another conversation back here, that all of a sudden you would find it very difficult to concentrate on what this person was saying to you because all of a sudden your ears are like, what are they saying about me? You, know, you, you, you are interested in what, what people say about you. Your name is a shorthand for who you are. Your name is a, a way for people to talk about you, to reference you, without, um, without saying your whole life story, without saying your personality, without saying your wife or your husband. Um, it, but all of that is really in, in your name. It's a, it's a handle for you. And so when you hear that name, you want, you want to know what people are saying about you. They, you care about what they think about you. Um, there are other people that care about what people think about them. Um, on Tuesday, there's going to be an election. And there are a lot of people who are very interested. In fact, I have been called, I think, maybe 30 times trying to find out what I think about the candidates. Um, but those people that care about what people think about them often will hire people to improve their image. 
Um, the politicians, I'm sure, have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on people who are polishing their image, either through political messages, through makeup, through acting classes, through speech classes. Um, you know, the, the debates, uh, I find it ironic, you know, the debates really aren't too much about content because the, the questions that are asked are rarely the questions that get answered. Um, usually the analysis of the debate often will boil down to, um, well, was that a smirk or a smile? Was he too confident? Was he too cocky? Was he, you know, did he open himself up enough? Did he use those, the right gestures? It's about, it's about image. It's about what people think of them. Um, who, are, who are some other famous people that you can think of? Yeah, sports figures. Tim Tebow, you know that name? Um, he recently signed a contract with two advertising companies or two management, image management kinds of companies. Um, why? Well, he's going to have a football career that if he doesn't get injured is going to last maybe 10 years if he's you know, extraordinarily um, blessed. Um, and in that 10-year period of time, he needs to make you know, as much money as he can uh, because after his football career, you know, what's he going to do? He's going to advertise toothpaste and underwear for a couple of years and then people are going to forget about him, right? So you ha- he has to hire people to help hone his image. Why? Well, because if people think he's cool, he's good-looking, he's, he's athletic, whatever, then other companies will be more likely... Can we turn the down a little bit? As I'm scaring myself. Thank you. Um. They, they will pay more money for you to autograph their balls or um, uh, drink their juice or chew their gum or whatever. You know, it's about, it's about money. Um, there are other people who are famous, uh, not because of athletic ability, not because of politics, but because they've done something, you know, amazing or possibly stupid. You know, there's a video that goes on Facebook or goes on YouTube and it goes viral and all of a sudden everybody knows this person's name. They're famous for those reasons. And if you can capitalize that, if you can make money on that, you're going to care about your image. You're going to care about what other people think about you. Well, would it surprise you to know that God also cares about his image? God cares about what people think about him? Now, he hasn't really hired any publicity agents. There aren't people coming to him for endorsements. But he's very concerned about what people think about him, what his fame is or his renown or his glory in the earth. And uh, he's concerned about his name. So much so that number three of the Ten Commandments says, do not take my name in vain. Do not use my name for a useless purpose. Do not use my name to uh, accomplish what you want accomplished instead of what I want accomplished. He is concerned about his name, his reputation. Now, why is that? Is it because he's petty? Is it because he is uh, narcissistic, self-obsessed? No, absolutely not. What it boils down to is, 
if people know him and know him accurately, they benefit from that. If people don't know the true God and they are not in a right relationship with God, then they are damned and on their way to hell. It does matter what you don't know. And so God is concerned about his name. God is concerned about his fame. He is concerned about his image because of the benefit that comes to his creatures. Now, what, what is this name? God says, don't take my name in vain. What, what, what name? Let's look at Exodus three thirteen to 20. Exodus three thirteen to 20. Moses is out in the wilderness. He uh, tried to rescue his people from Egypt on his own time frame, and it didn't work out, and so he went out into the desert and quit for 40 years. But God knew where he was. And God calls to Moses from a burning bush. And Moses goes over to the burning bush to see what's going on in, in Exodus 3, verse 12. Or, um, or Actually, God tells him, you're going to deliver my people from Egypt. And uh, Moses asks a very good question, you know, who am I, in verse 11, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I'm nobody. How am I going to do this? And God says, well, um, I'll give you a sign. Here's the sign. Um, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. You get that? Would you accept that as an acceptable sign? You hear what he's saying? He's saying, you'll know it was me when it happened. Past tense. You know, when you come out and you're standing here before this mountain, then you will know it was me who did it. Now get down there and do it. I don't know, would that work for you? I don't know, it's kind of, we got the timing messed up on that, God. Uh, So Moses asked another question. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, if you're Moses, and you're talking to God, you're talking to the burning bush, and God says, I want you to go down and I want you to steal the free labor from the world superpower, um, which is what was going down. I mean, you know, this was the Israelites were the free labor for the Egyptians. The Egyptians were the most powerful nation on the earth at that time. And Moses, the shepherd dude, who ran away after he got in trouble, is supposed to come back and say, all right, I'm taking your slaves. Now, if God just told you to do that and he gave you a lame sign on top of that, is the first question you're going to ask going to be, so, what's your name? That is not the first question that comes to my mind. My first question would be like, okay, where's the F-16s? Where's the backup tanks? You know, what, how are we going to pull this off? You know? The first question that Moses asks, the first question Moses says the people are going to ask me is, what's your name? Why is that the first question? Well, let's, let's go back to Egypt around uh, 1000 B.C. or 1400 B.C. 
you have to realize that Egypt was a polytheistic society. They worshipped hundreds of different deities. And Pharaoh was the spokesperson for the Egyptian pantheon, for all the gods. He was a spokesperson. He was the, the communicator to the people from the gods. And he was viewed as, as semi-divine himself. The Egyptians had a god for childbirth. They had a god for the afterlife. They had a god for the flooding of the Nile. They had a god for the sun. They had a god for healing. They had a god of the earth. So the very natural question for the Jews to ask Moses is, what is this god's name? And they weren't looking for George or Fred or Bob. They were looking for something a little more specific. This is what they got. Suppose I ask them what your name is, what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. My guess is that the Jews would be hoping that Moses would say something like, My name is Marduk the rescuer of Jewish slaves from Egyptian superpower. They wanted to know what God's specialty was, and they were hoping that it was rescuing slaves from nasty owners. That's not what they got. God said, I am who I am. You can't fill in the blank. I don't have a specialty. I am God. I am all that you need me to be. I don't have a weakness. I don't have a specialty. I will do what I say I will do and I'm going to rescue you from the Egyptians. So you tell them that I am has sent me to you. Now, in your Bibles, that particular name, that personal name for God is usually spelled L-O-R-D in all caps. And as English speakers, we tend to read that, at least I did, tend to read that as a title. Which L-O-R-D in lower caps is a title. It's a translation of Adonai, which means Lord, which is just like we use the word Lord. You know, Lord so-and-so, it's a title of respect. But Lord in all caps is actually Yahweh, which is the Hebrew for He is. Um, uh, at least, you know, the best we can figure out. Not I am, because it's third person. First person would be Yihyeh which is what God said to Moses, my name is Yihyeh, I am, because it's first person. But when Moses goes and tells the Israelites his name, he's going to say, his name is, he is, Yahweh. So to help you see that, as I read through the text, whenever I encounter the Lord in all caps, I will read it as Yahweh. And it's important that you understand that this is his personal name, and he is introducing himself to a polytheistic culture, Egypt. It has many, many different gods, all of whom have a specialty. Look at Exodus 5. Here comes Moses to talk to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, again, is the spokesperson for all the Egyptian deities to the Egyptian people. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And Pharaoh answered, 
very naturally, we would surely expect him to say this, Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. First of all, he doesn't know Yahweh. He doesn't know that name. It's meaningless to him. Furthermore, Moses is telling him that this is the God of Pharaoh's slaves. Now, if you're going to evaluate a deity's ability to be a good God, how high would you rank the God of slaves? Not very high. Pharaoh's not impressed. And we really shouldn't expect him to be. Moses comes to him and says, Yahweh has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know Yahweh. Furthermore, I am not going to let his people go. What comes next? The plagues. The plagues. And I would like to propose to you today that the plagues were God's way of letting the Egyptians and the Pharaohs and the Israelites know who is Yahweh. As a theology professor, I tell my students that you can, you can define God using, using theological terms and definitions and turn it into something that is just painfully boring. Or you can look at the narratives of Scripture that God uses to fill up what he means when he says he's holy. What it means when he says, I am who I am. What it means when he says, I am love. He always fills up those categories for us with his actions. And that's what's going on in this text. With these plagues, God is introducing Yahweh to Israel, who have been surrounded by Egyptian polytheism for 400 years. He is introducing Yahweh to Pharaoh. He is introducing Yahweh to the Egyptian people. What was the first sign that Pharaoh or that Moses did in front of Pharaoh? Water into blood was for the people, you know, the, 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 the leaders of Israel. That was a sign that Moses did for them. What did he do for a sign for Pharaoh, the first sign? His staff. Yeah. He threw down his staff and it became a snake. And we ask, why that sign? Well, if you look at Egyptian drawings and paintings, and you, know, you can Google it. Um, look at you know, Pharaoh's headdress. It's always got a cobra on it. Uh, usually a hood, a hood expanded cobra is on his headdress. The cobra was the symbol of Pharaoh. It was an indicator that you know, that's who he was. That was his, I don't know why, but um, I'm sure some people know, but I don't know. But that was a symbol for who Pharaoh was. And so Moses comes in, he throws down a staff, it becomes most likely a cobra. And the Egyptian magicians, they do the same thing. And then what happens? Best part of the story. Yeah, here goes, here goes Moses' snake eating ten snakes. Now, I, I don't know how that went down or what that looked like because snakes generally eat kind of slow. I don't know if the ten just kind of lined up and waited for their turn or what. 
But, you know, this is a very distinct Yahweh 1, Pharaoh 0. This was not just snakes eating snakes. It was Yahweh's snake eating the Egyptians' symbol of Pharaoh. What are the purpose of the plagues? I already told you what it is, but I want you to see it in the text. I did not make this up. Exodus 7, 4 to 5. Exodus 7, 4 to 5. This is more good news for Moses. Um, Verse 3, Exodus 7, 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Exodus nine thirteen to sixteen. Exodus ten one to two says the exact same thing. Look at Exodus fourteen verse four. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Even after Pharaoh finally relents and says, Get out of here, you're destroying my country. God will once again harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will send his armies out after Israel so that God can become victorious over the nation's superpower army at that time. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And then look in verse 18. Exodus fourteen eighteen, The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. These plagues are a competition between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. What was the first plague? The Nile River turns to blood. Does that strike you as an odd plague? It does me. This is very odd. Why that? Well, first of all, the Nile River was a source of life for Egypt. The Nile flooded every year and flooded their fields and brought silt, brought rich earth to their neck of the woods so that they could grow crops in abundance. So it was natural for them to worship the Nile. But what they believed is that the Nile River was a flow of blood coming from the goddess Osiris, who was giving life to Egypt. And so Yahweh said, At the word of Yahweh, my servant Moses will go out, and you want it to be blood? It's blood. Real blood. It stank, the fish died, they had no water to drink, they had to dig down beside the river to get water to drink. At the word of Yahweh, he turns Osiris' river into real blood. What's the next plague? Frogs. There was the goddess Hect, or Heka. She was the goddess of fertility. Now, how many of you ladies like frogs? Maybe some of you do. My sister-in-law loves frogs. She's got frogs all over her house. But they're not real frogs. You know, they're porcelain, they're clay, they're tin. You know, they're the non-slimy kind of frogs. Now, I realize those of you who are amphibian experts realize that frogs are not slimy. They're just, they're cold. (laughs) 
God said, you like frogs. I will give you lots of frogs. Now, ask, answer me this. Why would the goddess in charge of fertility and probably childbirth also, why would they pick a frog? You know, frogs are not cuddly. They're not fuzzy. They're not, they're not like baby, you know, wrap them up and take care of them. They're, they're you know, they're just not nice to cuddle. So I'm wondering why is well, it's because when the Nile River floods, and, and some of you might be aware of this, I don't know if they have them up here in Ohio in the springtime, we have the spring peepers. And if you're out in the country and you get your first rain, these little frogs, their eggs hatch out, and it's just peep, 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 peep. I mean, it's just, you know, if you're from the city, it's deafening. You know, if you live there, it's like just norm, normal sound. But they have this in, in Egypt. You know, these frogs, they hatch out, and they hatch out by the thousands. And it's, you know, it's a symbol of fertility for them. I mean, if, if this God can produce this many of these things, then this God should also be able to provide this many sheep and cows and, and fish and, and wheat. So the goddess of fertility is a frog. So God says, tomorrow at the word of my servant Moses, there will be frogs. And there were frogs in their bedroom, in their bathroom, in their cooking pots, in their kitchen. They were everywhere. And then they all died and they piled them up in big stinking heaps. Who won that one? Yahweh or Heka? Yahweh. And then there was lice or gnats or creeping things. We're not really sure. The Hebrew is, is not real specific in terms of what kind of animal it was. But it was something that, that, that afflicted the Egyptians terribly. And the Egyptians were very clean people. They, 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 they plucked their hair out. They were very very much concerned with cleanliness. And so here these Egyptians are, you know, the priests and Pharaoh are just afflicted with, with lice and itching things. And it's from the earth. Moses goes in, he scoops up some of the earth, Geb, the god of the earth, and Moses sprinkles it and it becomes lice at the word of Yahweh. And then there were flies or swarming things, possibly the uh, scarab beetle. A scarab beetle is a fancy name for a dung beetle. They roll poop around. They, they, they take animal manure and they make a ball out of it and they put their eggs in there and the, the decomposition of the, the, um, the manure heats up and, and helps their eggs to hatch. And they, they roll these balls all over the place. And the Egyptians thought that there was a scarab beetle that rolled the sun across the sky every morning. So they worshipped the scarab beetle um, because of that. And it was uh, you know, also a symbol for... Um, life coming out of death, you know, because these, these beetles would, would hatch out and crawl out of the, the, the um, balls of manure. So these were all over the place, clouds of them. And then the cows and other livestock were dying. This was the god Hathor. Hathor was a cow. And um, they believed that the Milky Way, the stars, you know, that you can see if you're in a really dark part of the United States and you can see the Milky Way, they thought that this was the milk coming from the god Hathor. And they found hundreds of embalmed cows in, in Egypt because they worshipped this, this Hathor god. And Yahweh said, tomorrow at the word of my servant Moses, they will all die. Hathor is supposed to be protecting their cattle. Hathor did not could not protect their cattle. Boils, we're not sure. It could have been targeted at the God of healing. Um, we're not real sure about the specific you know, deities that were being worshipped at this particular time in Egyptian um, theology. So some of these are a little bit fuzzy, but there's enough of them 
that um, we can see the pattern here. Hail. The goddess Nut was the mother of Ra. Ra, of course, is the sun god. And every morning she gives birth to Ra. Ra goes rolling across the sky with a scarab beetle, and at night Nut swallows Ra. So every day she gives birth to her son, and at night she swallows him. I'm not making that up. That's what they believe. But anyways. Um, and Nut is usually depicted as a, a woman who is she's dark blue, and she's got stars all over her body because she's the sky god. She's the sky goddess. And she is the one, she's usually depicted, she's, she's, she's over the earth, and she's nourishing the earth, and she's protecting the earth. And God said, tomorrow there will be hailstones that you've never seen before falling from the sky. Newt, who's supposed to protect you, will not at the word of Yahweh. The greatest God was the sun god, Ra. Ra was the head of the pantheon. He causes everything to grow. He is the, you know, Egypt is a very sunny place, a very hot place, and the sun is a dominant feature in that part of the world. You just can't, it's inescapable. And Ra was the head of the pantheon. He was the top god. And this last plague before the, the, this penultimate plague, God says, tomorrow, at the word of my servant Moses, the sun will go dark. And it was so dark, they could not see their hand in front of their face. One by one by one, Yahweh is saying, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, you don't know who Yahweh is. But you should. Because I am greater than all your gods. Moses doesn't come in to Pharaoh and say, these are all fake gods. These are pretend gods. You guys are silly for worshiping them. Instead, he says to a polytheistic culture that believes without thinking that these are real deities, that the God of the Hebrew slaves is mightier than all those gods. Finally, the last plague, and I don't have time to show the connections, but there's a connection between Israel being God's firstborn son. And he tells the Egyptians that if you demonstrate faith in Yahweh by doing what Yahweh says to do, i.e. putting the blood over the doorposts, then my angel of death will pass over your home. But where I do not see an evidence of your faith in Yahweh, then your firstborn son will die. Firstborn livestock will die. The firstborn son of Pharaoh, who would have been viewed as semi-divine, died just like the cattle in the field at the word of Yahweh. Now, all through all these plagues, Egypt, as the most powerful nation on the earth, as the wealthiest nation on the earth, is being reduced to rubble. People are being killed And at one point, Pharaoh's advisors say, don't you see we're being destroyed? Let these people go. It made no sense for Pharaoh to keep them there. He did it because God hardened his heart. And God says that. I will harden his heart so that I can destroy Egypt. 
And then, finally, Moses says, get out! And he drives them out, and the Egyptians give them all kinds of money and gold and jewels and send them on their way. And then finally, Moses, or uh, Pharaoh, his heart is hardened one more time, and he sends out his army to catch them and bring them back. And his army is wiped out. And in the Song of Moses, he sings about the horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. Their dead bodies are on the shore. Now, why does God care that much about his image? It seems rather petty, doesn't it? To destroy an entire nation just so that people know who he is? You know, I was talking to a guy on a fishing boat one day and and he, he decided that he didn't like Job's God because Job suffered all kinds of stuff and it looked like it was just this, this, this competition between God and Satan. And why did God do all that stuff to Job just to prove to Satan that he was better? It's kind of the, it feels like the same thing going on here. Why would God destroy all those Egyptians, all those animals, and, and bring all that pain and suffering on Egypt just so they would know who Yahweh is? It's because he wants all people to know who Yahweh is. Because if you don't know who Yahweh is, then you have a far worse fate waiting for you than hailstones on your head. When the Israelites came into the promised land and the spies go into Jericho and they're talking to Rahab, Rahab tells them, We are scared to death of you because we heard what your God did to the gods of Egypt and we've seen what your God did to the Jordan River. God's fame has gone out. People know who Yahweh is. And if they express faith in that God, if they show and demonstrate that they believe that Yahweh is the true and mighty God, then they're spared. They're rescued. They're redeemed. The angel passes over them. And that's what we celebrated this morning in communion. Communion is going all the way back to that Passover event in Egypt. It's a demonstration of God's grace and God's redemption. So the important question that I have to ask for you today is how famous is your God. Do people know the God that you worship? Do you praise Him? Do you increase His fame in the world, either through good works or through your speech? Are you letting people know who Yahweh is and the kind of God that He is, the kind of God that He is for you? In a lot of ways, evangelism is, is a competition between the true God and false gods. Because if someone is not worshiping the one true God, they're worshiping some other deity. It might be themselves. It might be their family. It might be their job. It might be Buddha. It might be a Hindu statue. They're worshiping some other God. And part of evangelism is asking them to evaluate 
How sufficient is your God? Because I can guarantee you that their false gods are not sufficient. How famous, how famous is our God? When we make disciples, we increase God's glory. We increase God's fame. When we do good works, people see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. John fifteen eight. When we bear much fruit, we bring glory to God. I think it's very interesting in the final chapters of the Bible. It says there's no sun, there's no moon in the earth because the glory of God is the light of that city. The fame and the renown and the, the, the praise that's due to God will, will light the skies in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know what that means. But it means that God's fame and God's glory is a very, very significant theme in Christianity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we are humbled that you have chosen to use us and to depend upon us to make your fame and your glory known throughout the earth. And we repent of our unwillingness to do that, of our failure to do that, because it's hurting so many people that that we love in keeping this knowledge to ourselves. I pray that we would be acquainted with who you are, that we would be aware of the ways in which you are an awesome God for us, and that we would be boldly sharing that with others so that they cannot say, who is Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh, but that they would indeed become worshipers of you. In Jesus' name, amen.